All right. So some, some of you probably know that I am planning to go on a sabbatical starting this middle of this next week, and I'll be uh, gone for two months. Uh, I likened it this morning to I'm, I'm going up the mountain to meet with the Lord, um, which I'm, I'm hopeful and optimistic the Lord will meet me there. <laughs> It'll be terrible to come back and only be able to say, well, I climbed a mountain. Um, but anyhow, uh, so because of that, I, I'm not going to preach for two months, and I, I could not tell you the last time that I have not preached for two months. It's, it's been a really long time. It's possible that it's been 14 years. <laughs> Anyways, um, so I am, I am admittedly doing what uh, preachers should never do. I am going to preach like a 20-point sermon today. <laughs> Uh, we might be, we may be here a while, so get comfortable. Um, and and part of this is because uh, the subject for today is the the topic of unity, which we've kind of been talking about for a couple of weeks. But um, but it just came to me that the book of First Corinthians was such a great uh, book to talk about when you're talking about unity in the church. And you know, it's unfortunate the book's not the shortest letter the Apostle Paul wrote, so it's. It's kind of a long book, and, and we're going we're gonna to kind of run through a lot of it today. Um, I'll just be giving highlights. We won't be reading the whole thing today uh, like they did when he initially delivered the letter. But um, anyway, so settle in. Lord, we just ask that you would make this time uh, fruitful for your kingdom. I know that in my own mind and heart, I feel like there are things that you have uh, prompted me to share today, but um, we just... We just believe that you have important things to accomplish. And so we want to uh, just surrender our hearts to you. We ask that you would open our ears and uh, just allow us to hear your voice today, uh, speaking to us your words of eternal life. In Jesus' name, amen. So we've been going on a series through what we call it Lessons from the Early Church, uh, just looking for insight into the first century Christians, how they lived their lives, how they thought about the world. And last week, we talked about how Jesus is the foundation of the church. Uh, and he's the foundation of a unified church and the commitment of believers to walk together on the truth of who Jesus is. It, it really becomes kind of a guardrail that keeps us on the path following Jesus and on the path believing right things. This was contrasted with how individualism can really creep into our spiritual walk. And the idea that all I need is myself and, and Jesus and a Bible and, and I'll just figure this stuff out on my own. Uh, the idea even that the scriptures would be a reliable guardrail uh, for the road of following Jesus. And the reality for us is that the scriptures are not a reliable guardrail because we are not reliable at rightly interpreting scripture uh, that was written at a time we didn't live in a language we don't understand. Um, and so the safety for that is brought by walking together. The hopes is that any gaps I might have in my ability to interpret Scripture and understand what God has for my life will be filled by you and the revelation that God gives you uh, as you pour over the Scriptures yourself. And, uh, and the whole idea being that in the global church, there's a real safety in numbers and an ability for us to walk together. Um, but unity is required. And so if unity becomes a guardrail for us in staying on the path following Jesus Christ, I think it could be asked, what does unity mean? Or how do we 
walk in unity with one another? How important is it for us to, to really be together? And then what does it even mean to be in unity together? For some, when you talk about being in unity, it means that everyone needs to think the same way. Uh, they're talking about the idea that, uh, you know, everyone at this church thinks this way about the Bible and everyone at that church thinks that way. Or, and we might be uncomfortable being around people who don't agree with us on everything. We might feel like we're not unified unless we're agreeing on everything. So I think it's important for us to talk about unity a little bit, partly because we are living at a time when the church can be torn apart by disunity in the church. Remember when we talked about, uh, we did a series on the book of Judges uh, leading up to this summer, and one of the things that we found in the book of Judges was that more often than not, the greatest enemy of Israel was Israel. It was the people of God who were the greatest enemy to the people of God. And so often, even today, the people of God are tempted to repeat that cycle where we become the worst enemies to each other. I think the message of unity is also not just for the people of God, but in our nation living here today, it, it has a message that's of particular evangelistic value. You know, yesterday it was 20 years since the attack on the Twin Towers on 9-11. I spent my weekend, probably as many of you did, reading stories and reflections on that terrible day and on the last 20 years since. And something kept coming up in, in light of those reflections. Uh, you know, there are all these threats to our national security, but different voices are jumping into the narrative saying over and over again that they, their concern is it, their greatest threat they feel to our national security and to our culture and our way of life is the division that is in our nation right now. You know, there's a concern that we the people might choose a dark path of division and, and ultimately bloody and civil war if something doesn't change. If we cannot find ourselves united as a nation again. So where can we turn for change? Well, how about the scriptures? Paul's first letter to the Corinthians was all about addressing division in that church. And it has a lot of really helpful doctrine on how we can walk in unity. The nuts and bolts of how a church should walk together. Things to watch out for. Things to be careful of. Things to tread lightly on. Things to hold fast to. After Paul gets past his greetings in 1 Corinthians chapter 1... He says to them in, chapter, in verse 10, he says, I'm appealing to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there's no division among you, but that you're perfectly united in mind and in thought. And in many ways, this is the appeal of Paul's letter. This is why he's writing it. Word has come to him that there's great division in this church. In many ways, the rest of the contents of this letter reads like this is how to obey this appeal to be unified, to not be uh, broken up by the disagreements and things that are going on. In chapter 2, Paul writes about, um, he writes about leaning on the power of God's Spirit. And, he, and he's, he talks about that because there's this idea that when we are relying on our own talents or our own devices, we tend to then elevate ourselves over other people depending on our own talents or abilities. And, and when we tend to elevate ourselves over other people, there tends to be division that then comes in. 
as someone in the church seems better than the others. Chapter 2, he's saying you've got to lean on the power of God's Spirit because God's Spirit is accessible to everyone. And God's Spirit is just in that he is poured out equally on all flesh. There's a unifying principle in that. Chapter 3 talks about Jesus being the foundation and we together are the temple of God. This was a passage we talked about last week. But that when we're unified by this truth, rather than being divided by our own pride, or he uses the phrase in chapter 3, the wisdom of this age, he says when we're unified on the foundation of Jesus Christ, we're, we're uh, able to stand together and we're in unity. Someone's Bible is re- app is reading out loud to them. I can hear it all the way up here on the stage. I think we see that principle of wisdom of this age all the time today, right? And we see that wisdom of this age dividing, you know, Christians. We see it on the news. We see it on social media sites. We see where people are embracing and running with the wisdom of this age. It isn't necessarily of no value whatsoever, but it becomes incredibly divisive. When Jesus is our foundation, we're found together as the temple of God built upon that. When we're leaning into the wisdom of this age, we find ourselves divided and arguing over things that we really shouldn't be dividing over. Chapter 4 is another exercise for Paul in leveling the playing field. He talks about those who would boast about their own virtues or their own authority, and he's reminding them that, hey, you who think you're so awesome, you're all servants of God. He's the one who ultimately judges us. He is the one that we are accountable to. And I think for many of us, we cannot live unified with one another if we refuse to embrace the reality of that level playing field. If you're looking around the body of Christ and you're thinking, these people are above me or these people are below me, you will really struggle to be unified with those people. And those of us who become enamored with our own virtues or our own abilities, we're always going to be very quick to distance ourselves from or to condemn those who we don't think are quite measuring up to our own standards of righteousness. Chapter 4, Paul levels the playing field, reminds us we're all servants of Christ, and he is the one who's ruling over us. Let the master deal with his servants who aren't towing the line that the master wants them to tow. You mind yourself. Chapter 5 and 6, he talks about rooting sin out of your midst, especially sexual sin. And then he leans into this idea. He says, don't sue one another. He's heard a report that the people in Corinth are taking each other to court. And the interesting thing is that Paul says to them, wouldn't it be better for you to just be wronged by your brother or sister than to somehow submit the people of God to the world's system of justice? I don't know how often you've been tempted to embrace that idea, to tell yourself, you know what? I think it would be better for me to just be wronged by this person than to go and seek out the justice that I think I deserve. But this seems like an incredibly foreign idea to people living here today, right? We have a lot of confidence in our justice system to take care of the issues for us. I have, you know, a number of friends who work in law enforcement and And in having conversations with them, they share a a common frustration with society. And that's that people will call them before they try to do any kind of resolving of the situation themselves. And 
I'm thinking, of course, because I know it's a crazy, hostile, horrible world out there. And if I go over to my neighbor's house and knock on the door and ask them to turn their music down, I might just get shot. And some of us feel like, yeah, that's real. That's real. That's why, that's why I don't ask my neighbor to turn their music down. But I think it shows how quickly we are to punt the responsibilities that we might have to make peace with one another, to problem solve together, to work through conflict together, how quick we are to punt those things to the professionals who this is what they do every day. It really creates a barrier to unity when you're suing your Christian brothers and sisters. It creates a barrier to, I mean, one of the reasons I don't call the cops on my neighbors is because I don't want them to know that I called the cops on them, right? Like, how are we going to be friends if you called the cops on them? That would just ruin everything. I think it's helpful if we, if we all embrace our, uh, our role as servants of God and we trust the master to take care of us, we trust God to care for us, I think it's easier for us to endure hardship or endure what we feel like is injustice at the hands of others if we really trust the God that we're supposed to be walking with. And I think in some ways the fact that we don't turn to him or we don't look to him or we aren't willing to endure injustice without getting the court system involved, I think it, it betrays in many ways what our relationship with God is like. We're not really walking with him if we are leaning and trusting in these other structures, these other things to deliver us. We're not confident in his ability to really care for us because we've never walked closely enough with him to experience his care and see it as coming from him. Chapter 7 is an interesting chapter. Paul writes to them and, and he says, I don't think that changing your marital status is going to bring you satisfaction or is going to bring you closer to God. Essentially, it's a chapter about being faithful where you are, being content where you are and being faithful to God through that. Now, I don't think that everyone in the room is probably thinking that a change of marital status is exactly what's going to, to fix their problems in life. Um, but I think that our society is really wrestling with a, a discontented spirit. It's very, very easy for us, and, and studies have shown, especially if you spend any kind of amount of time on social media whatsoever, it's very, very easy for us to look at our lives and be incredibly discontented by it. To see that, well, everyone else is having such a great time, or everyone else's life seems perfect, and my life is trash. And I think in many ways the principle of chapter 7 is here is to learn to be content where you're at and to be faithful to God through it. And I think without contentment, uh, and, and one thing that breeds that discontentment is, is the whole of how we see others. And there's jealousy, there's envy, there's, oh, they seem to be doing so much better. You can imagine in the... Uh, the whole, I'm going to toss off a marriage and try something else. Like that, that kind of stuff really creates relational uh, disunity. It really creates conflict. And a lack of faithfulness creates conflict as well. I mean, it is frustrating to be on a team with someone who is always dropping the ball. Or someone who's always wishing to play on a different team. And so you can see that contentment, that faithfulness, when we walk together in that it, it becomes a key ingredient in our unity. 
Chapters 8 and 9, Paul talks about rights and freedoms. He, he assures them, you know, in Christ, you're free. You have the right to eat what you want. He talks about his rights as an apostle. I could be demanding these things. He says, don't let anyone look down on you for what you're eating. Uh, as an apostle, I could be demanding support. I could be uh, demanding this or that. Um, and yet, he talks about all of that. You're justified to all of that. But then he says, yet when the kingdom is advanced because I'm laying down my rights, or when the kingdom can be advanced because you're laying down your rights, he lays it out there like this should be a, a no-brainer. Just lay down your rights. And of course, for us, you know, uh, living here today, laying, laying down our rights, that is not what we do. That is not a popular message. We like the first part of what Paul was saying about all the rights that we have. Yeah, I'm not going to let anyone look down on me for what I eat. I'm free in Jesus. Don't you dare tell me I have to wear that to church. Yet Paul says, well, I'll read it. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, 19. He says, I am free and I belong to no one. And yet I've made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those who are under the law. And to those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I'm not free from God's law, but I'm under Christ's law. He says, so as to win those who are not having the law. To the weak, I became weak. To win the weak, I become all things to all people, so that by all possible means, I might save some. He said, I do this for the sake of the gospel that I might share in its blessings. You know, Paul was willing to meet people where they were at. And he was willing to lay down whatever rights or freedoms he might have. If it came to all the obligations of the law, he knew as a follower of Jesus, he's free from all of that. And yet when he's ministering to those who are, you know, burdened with the law, the Jews... He just jumped in there with him and he followed and towed the line and did everything. When he's ministering to those who are without the law, he didn't allow the convictions that he had from his Jewish heritage and, and the sort of the Jewish roots, the Christian faith, he didn't allow those things to become barriers to people coming to Jesus. But he met them where they're at and he jumped into their world. He talks about, to the weak, I became weak. And I think these are the kinds of areas where we can really, I mean, it's, it's not super tempting to meet people where they're at if it means I have to become weak. It's not super tempting to meet people where they're at if it means that I have to uh, somehow take on to myself something that would diminish my, uh, you know, my self-perception or diminish what I would feel like my influence or would make me look less than. These are, these are areas where it's challenging to meet people where they're at at. And yet Paul says, I'm doing all these things for the sake of the gospel. I think sometimes we forget what our lives are supposed to be all about. It's supposed to be about sharing God's kingdom with the world around us, sharing the good news. And Paul understands that if I choose my rights over the reconciliation of the lost, that is working counter to what God is trying to do here in the world. That is going to bring disunity, right? We have a God who's trying to bring things into unity under Christ. And when I'm holding fast to my rights and trampling on others, it, it really stifles my ability 
to live as an ambassador of that kingdom. Chapter 10, Paul talks about lessons from Israel's history. He talks about the ancient history, uh, stories that have been preserved for people to, to know how to live today. And when Paul brings up the lessons from Israel's history, it's interesting. He doesn't bring up the watch out for the Philistines or the Amalekites kind of lessons. He brings the lesson saying, don't be like Israel. There was this time when they worshipped idols. Don't be like Israel when they worshipped idols. There was this time when they were grumbling. Don't be like Israel. It's a reminder, right? Who's the greatest enemy of Israel? It's Israel. Who is your greatest enemy? What's the biggest threat to your being who God has created you to be? It is not the other side of the political aisle. It is not the other denomination across the street. It is us. Israel led themselves into idolatry. Israel grumbled against the leaders God had given them, against what God told them to do. Paul's saying, you've got to keep a watch over yourselves, over your own souls. The divisive spirit that causes us is the greatest threat to us. It doesn't come from outside. It, it comes out of the abundance of sinfulness that resides in our own hearts, the wickedness that flows out of us. And I mean, the prayer has to be, right? Lord, show me my blind spots because I don't, I don't know. I don't know where I'm broken. Chapter 11 is the head covering passage. Uh, in, this, in this part of scripture, I think we will do really well to read it as Paul's instructions to people who were living, um, they're living in such a counterculture movement, like the church, it, it, the, the church moves forward because it's this subser- subversive uh, kingdom of God type existence. It doesn't fall in line with the count around it. And so his instructions on head coverings is trying to give information to people who are operating in the context of this countercultural movement, trying to help them operate in ways that are going to be sensitive to cultural norms that would tarnish the reputation of the gospel around them if they just, you know, threw complete caution to the wind and, and ran around doing whatever they wanted. And so it's about things being in order, and it's about the church being able to still meet a society where it's at, even if it is a counterculture movement. In Corinth, it was head coverings for women in worship. Today, it could be an argument for women not wearing head coverings in worship. Uh, you imagine if we insisted that women come into church with doilies on their heads uh, because that's what Paul commanded, and some modern Christians do insist this, you could imagine that would become an incredible barrier for the lost of Cowlitz County to ever come inside. <laughs> and so, essentially, I, I believe this is what Paul's trying to speak to in Corinth. It's about, okay... Uh, we are a counterculture movement, yes, but how can we uh, shape the things and the convictions that God gives us in a way that our culture can receive it? Um, the second half of chapter 11, Paul rebukes Corinth for, um, for the manifestation of their divisions that happens in the way that they celebrate the Lord's Supper. And so they're supposed to be coming together every week to celebrate the, the Lord's Supper, the sacrifice, the bread and the cup. And um, rather than it being something where the church comes together and they're unified under the singular sacrifice of Jesus, it becomes a place where everyone is seeking out for their own 
interests. Greedy people are coming and gobbling up all the bread before anyone else has a chance to eat or, or drinking all the wine and getting drunk before anyone has a chance to drink the wine. And Paul rebukes them for that. He says, he says that's not how things are supposed to work. And, and he reminds them that it's, it's the, the, the body of Christ. Like it's one body. It's not a time for us to be seeking out our individual opportunities to get ahead. It's a time for us to be unified in Christ. Verse 12, he lays out the unity that should exist in a body of Christ where uh, the Spirit works differently in every believer. And he uses the analogy of a human body where he's talking about the Spirit working and, and he's talking about the Spirit working in the church and acknowledging that, hey, God works differently in every person. And he gifts everyone differently. And so just like Every body has unique parts, so the body of Christ has unique parts. You have hands, you have feet, you have eyes and ears, and, and it would be so foolish and absurd for a hand you know, to say to an eye, I really don't need you, you're not a part of me, uh, simply because you know hands are super practical and useful for things, and eyes are just like slimy balls, right? Like they just, I, what good does it do? And a hand has no idea what the eye is doing for it. Um, if our hands were self-aware. Um, it's a super helpful analogy. <laughs> so he says, just like in a human body, you have all these different parts, but it's all unified. It's all one body. He's saying, that's how the body of Christ is supposed to be. There's supposed to be diversity. There's supposed to be people in your life that you walk with as the body of Christ that have insight into God that is different from your own. What benefit would it be if the whole body was an an ear or, you know, a giant toe or something. It wouldn't. So we need to be different. But how can a body where God works so differently and works, you know, through people who are so different, how can it stay unified? And this is probably the only part of the teaching that I should have even mentioned today. But at the end of chapter 12, Paul says, I'm going to show you the most excellent way. And he moves into 1 Corinthians 13. And if you're familiar with 1 Corinthians 13, you probably, how many of you had it read at your wedding? Anyone have 1 Corinthians 13 read at your wedding? None of you? Sinners. Oh. <laughs> it's like the wedding verse. 1 Corinthians 13. And partly because it's, it's a beautiful piece of poetry, like for a moment, Paul takes off his scholarly hat and he puts on his painter's robe and he pens this, you know, marvelous work of art. Um, but I think part of the reason that we reserve it for weddings is because we don't want to feel this kind of obligation to anyone but our spouse. And yet, and yet Paul writes it to a church that is struggling with disunity, and he writes it to say, this is how a diverse church walks together. 1 Corinthians 13, he says, If I speak in the tongues of men or angels, but I do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. The drummers are like, what's so bad about that? <laughs> if I have a gift of prophecy, I can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge. And if I have faith that can move mountains, or we'll just say cure cancer, but I do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and I give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. 
I'm just telling you, if any of you had any of these gifts or did any of these things that we've just read, even without love, you'd probably be at the top of my list. I mean, I would just be like, they're incredible. You have no idea. But God looks at things differently than we do. He says, love is patient and love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast and it is not proud. It does not dishonor others and it's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered, and it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but it rejoices with the truth. And it always protects, always trusts, always hopes, and always perseveres. And love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. And where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when completeness comes, what is in part will disappear. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, and I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. But then we'll see face to face. And now I know in part, and then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. These three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Love is the more excellent way. Love is what we are called to live in in these divisive times. Jesus said, this is my commandment, that you would love one another. And that's what the New Testament authors are referring to when they talk about the law of Christ. They're talking about Jesus' commandment to his disciples. You would love one another. Paul said to the Romans, the church in Rome, let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. So we say, yes, we're going to love one another. We're going to be a part of this unity. We're not going to be authors of division in the church. I would encourage you to read Corinthians 13 again. Is, are you really going to love people? Is that your brand of love, or have you adopted some disingenuous fake? I was at a prayer meeting this week, and uh, I meet on Thursdays to pray with other pastors in the city and have for years. And we're praying for unity because we live in a divided world. And the prayers are going okay. It's pretty good. Um. And then someone prayed God's strength and blessing to encourage education workers and healthcare workers who are grappling with a difficult and demanding workload in this season. The next prayer that was prayed was an, an eight-minute monologue about not joining the accuser of the brethren and then praying for, yes, those who got the shot and are still working, but then also praying for those who refused the mark of the beast. And lost their jobs. This is not a prayer for unity. It's sort of like saying, I love you, and then not living out Corinthians 13. Like, you can't say, I'm praying for unity, and then say, one group has taken the mark of the beast, and the other one hasn't. Like, you're, that's, not, that's not how this works. And so, I left. <laughs> Sorry, guys. 
Um, quietly, I just quietly left. And I've left twice in the last month. I just couldn't take it. Um, so you say you'll love each other, but will you really? We say we're committed to unity, but are you really? I, the verse stands, the chapter stands on its own. So read it this week. Meditate on it. When you feel like you're acting out of love, line that up with the word of God. Am I really acting out of love? I think one of the most important things to understand about unity is the fact that it is so costly. I mean, I left, but I'll go back after sabbatical. I'll go back and pray again. Um, It's costly. Sometimes you have to listen to people pray things that you just feel like you don't quite agree with. You have to love them anyways. You have to humble yourself. You just say, I don't know everything. I'm like a child stumbling around in the dark with a bad mirror. Like, I don't see everything. But I believe that God is doing something in humanity that can be discerned, that it is of value, and that we will get there together. I think this is... uh, Well, yeah, unity is costly. Love is costly. We cannot live unified with others when we're living for ourselves. This is part of the reason why I think Paul is charging the church to strive for unity because if we, if we are divided, we are not accomplishing the, um, we're not accomplishing the kingdom of God. Uh, when Paul wrote to the Ephesians, uh, he said that uh, with all wisdom and understanding, God has made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purchased, purposed in Jesus Christ. And then he says, his will is to put into effect, or his will will be put into effect at the times, sorry, (laughs) I can read, I promise. His will is going to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment. So there's this fullness of the age idea. And and theologians have had this for years, that there is a time when God is going to uh, fulfill all things and, and, you know, bring to an end all things, all the brokenness as it is, and establish a whole kingdom. He says, God is going to do that when the times reach their fulfillment, and his will is to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. What is it that God is accomplishing through Christ? He is bringing back into unity with himself all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. And so when we walk in a divisive spirit, we cannot be a part of building that kingdom. We cannot be a part of the momentum that we believe God has, you know, breathed into creation and is sustaining through creation the momentum that is moving all things into unity under Christ. So while we might live in divisive times and while we might have a diversity of opinions or convictions on different things and while it might be as difficult a season as any to strive for unity, that doesn't change the gospel. That doesn't change the commands of Scripture to us. We're not let off the hook just because it's a hard time to do it. The law of Christ does not change. And so we need to be people who live our lives on the foundation 
of Christ's perfect life and who follow his example of selfless, self-sacrificing love. The kind of love that costs us as we love one another and as we proclaim his kingdom with our lives. I'm going to pray. Lord, we thank you that you are uh, doing it. You're accomplishing it. In fact, we believe that in so many ways the end is already written. You are bringing all things in heaven and to earth, in heaven and on earth, into unity under Jesus Christ. And so today we ask that you would uh, just continue that work, uh, beginning in our own hearts, that we would be found uh, in that place, under Christ, submitted to his lordship, submitted to the way he leads, uh, ready to lay our lives down. Uh, for those around us, ready to lay our lives down for the advance of your kingdom. And if we're not called to lay down our lives, we ask that you would give us the grace to lay down our rights, something that we're not good at. Today we look to you, we look to your Holy Spirit to help us be the people you've called us to be, uh, to continue to uh, weave our hearts together in unity with one another, Uh, where there are people here who feel disconnected, who feel isolated. We ask that you would, your spirit would do a work of drawing them in, of making connections, of giving them meaningful relationships. We ask that you would surround us with people who are not just like us, who don't think all the same things, who don't have all the same opinions, but you would surround us with people who will challenge us, who will sharpen us like iron sharpens iron, people who will grate across our sensibilities and our convictions and make us sharper. Lord, where in the past maybe we've been unwilling to be around people who aren't like us, we ask that you would help us change. Give us grace. Give us hearts that would love others uh, the way that you love them, that would see them the way that you see them. That would be willing to pay the ultimate price to see them reconciled. We thank you because you are faithful And we just praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.